You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution, exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. Thanks for joining our Brookings Tech Tank podcast. I'm Daryl West, Vice President of Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution. With the 2022 U.S. midterm elections right around the corner, political tensions are running high and there are concerns about election security. Conservative pundits have been casting doubt on the integrity of the vote, citing possible problems with fake mail-in ballots or rigged voting machines. Meanwhile, concerns linger across the political spectrum regarding the possibility of foreign adversaries launching cyber attacks to manipulate the results of the vote or interfere with the campaign itself. To protect public integrity and faith in election results, it is vital for the U.S. to work to combat existing misinformation, ensure the safety of election officials, and guarantee that existing cybersecurity measures are adequate in protecting the vote of the American people. To discuss these issues, I'm pleased to be joined by Elaine Kmark, who's a senior fellow in governance studies and director of the Center for Effective Public Management at Brookings, and Liz Howard, who is senior counsel for the Brennan Center for Justice's Democracy Program. We're going to discuss gaps in existing measures to protect election security and actions that are necessary to remedy these weaknesses. So Elaine and Liz, welcome to our podcast. So I'd like to start with you, Elaine. There have been a number of concerns expressed about election security. What are the problems about which you worry the most in this area? Well, Daryl, this is such an interesting program because it made me think back to um, a couple years ago when you and I first started talking about election security after the 2016 elections. And at that point, it was really all about foreign interference, um, attempts by Russia, which were not successful, but we know were made to infiltrate uh, state voting systems and perhaps change the vote. You know, there was a lot of worry about foreign interference. I think that one of the most interesting things is that between then and now, um, we have to worry about domestic disruption as opposed to foreign interference. And it's so interesting that um, what election officials are really concerned about today is disruption at polling places. And they're talking about enhanced security at polling places, having more police around, more security around. Uh, the election officials themselves have been under attack from far-right radicals who threaten their lives, threaten their children, etc. It's it's a very different in some ways. Uh, in some ways, it's the same. We still have to worry about um, foreign interference. Over the, over the internet and social media, but now we have this element of homegrown terrorism, which is affecting election officials all across the country and particularly may be affecting voters come November. 
Yes, and I would just um, add a couple of things. So even before 2016, election security um, was pretty much focused on whether or not uh, you used uh, paper ballots and conducted post-election audits. So um, as Elaine mentioned, the threat landscape has changed dramatically since pre-2016. Um, now election officials, again, are, are concerned about potential attacks by foreign adversaries, um, mis-, dis-, and malinformation campaigns that, be, that are being launched against them, targeting them, um, and as both of you have mentioned, threats against election officials and our election infrastructure. So really, our democracy at the moment is facing a multi-prong attack, um, and there, you know, there's no magic bullet that is going to address all of these concerns, and it's going to require a whole-of-society approach um, to combat the mis- and disinformation, to prevent and minimize the threats against our election officials and the um, resulting challenges um, stemming from all these, uh, uh, you know, attacks against our democracy. So Liz, that is interesting that you mentioned the need for a whole of society approach. So could you elaborate on that? What does that mean? And what do you think is involved with that? Yes. So, you know, it starts um, just with everyday voters um, and members of the public. They need to be responsible social media consumers. Um, and if they have questions about um, election administration, they need to contact a trusted source, which is typically going to be a local or state election official. So, um, you know, think before you repost, think before you um, share information on your on your networks. Um, the social media companies also have a role to play. They need to um, identify and remove uh, chronic uh, spreaders of mis, dis, and malinformation. Um, election officials, too, you know, need to work on um, doing potentially a better job of educating the public about how elections are actually run. I think in some ways, election officials um, uh, can be their own worst enemy because in general, the uh, so many of us go to the polls and it's just so easy to cast a ballot. And we don't have an appreciation for all of the huge amount of work um, that that went into making it so easy for you when you go vote. Election administration has grown increasingly complex as, uh, you know, we, again, make it easier to register to vote and make it easier to register or apply for an absentee ballot and make it easier to go in person to vote by offering potentially vote centers or other options like that. Um, there's a huge amount of infrastructure on the back end that the majority of voters don't see and don't know about and certainly are unaware of, many are unaware of all of the safeguards that have been built into those systems uh, to ensure that only eligible voters can vote um, and that they can only vote once. Um, so, you know, and I, um, one of the things uh, that the, the Brennan Center and other um, organizations, including R Street and Protect Democracy, are working to support is uh, called the Committee for Safe and Secure Elections, which is where um, current and former law enforcement members are working with current and former election officials and cybersecurity experts and other election administration experts to work together um, to plan for safe and secure elections. As the threats against election officials are increasing, um, it's requiring law enforcement to step forward and they need to be mindful about how they do that and partner with election officials to ensure that um, they protect against voter intimidation or the, even the perception of voter intimidation. So lots of work by lots of communities um, and lots to do before, before the election um, this year in 2022 and 2024. 
So Elaine, it's interesting what is not on the list of the problems that uh, neither you nor Liz have uh, mentioned. And that includes things like fake ballots and rigged voting machines, which when you look at public opinion surveys, those are things that some parts of our society are worried about. Are those things really not those uh, serious of a threat compared to some of the other issues that you've been talking about, you know, disruptions of the ballot uh, or uh, some of the social media problems that Liz was just mentioning? It was interesting, Daryl, in that regard to to have this conversation against the backdrop of the January 6th hearings, which happened yesterday, perhaps the last hearing, maybe not. And it's, it's, you know, here at Brookings, we're doing a project on election deniers and what they are talking about, right, in terms of what kinds of reforms they would like to see. And of course, a lot of them focus on... um, absentee ballots. They want to really pull back the use of absentee ballots. They're convinced that absentee ballots were the cause of much of the confusion and fraud in 2020. Now, nobody's ever proven that, but this is what the deniers say. So in their platforms, they want to get rid of absentee ballots, which I think is pretty interesting, or make it very, very hard to use an absentee ballot. The interesting thing about that is they simultaneously want to um, have go to all paper ballots, right, which is what an absentee ballot is. So in some respects, they're kind of contradicting themselves. The bottom line here is that we will have a lot of absentee ballots in this coming election because people got used to using them in 2020 during the pandemic, and they really like them. They really like the ease of it. And that brings me to a proposal that I think would at least help a little bit in our whole conversation around election security, which is states should wait to report the vote until all the vote is counted. Right now, what they do is they report the election day vote, and then they wait for all the absentee ballot votes to get in. And it can take, in a state like California, it can take 10 days before there's a final vote. In that period of time is time for lots of mischief. Um, the We called it in 2020 the red mirage because of course what Trump has done single-handedly and the election deniers have done is they've caused, said to people, vote on election day, don't vote absentee because they're gonna steal your ballot or change your ballot or something like that, which is pretty ridiculous, but that's what they've said. And they said, and, and then that gives them the ability on election night to cast doubt on the rest of the ballots coming in, the absentee ballots coming in. So my suggestion would be, at least until we figure out how to count absentee ballots in a more um, timely way, my suggestion would be that states simply tell the media, who's you know hyperventilating to get results, tell the media, we will make a we will make an announcement of the vote when it is clear that enough of the vote is in that the remaining vote that's still out will not change an outcome and i think that will really take some of the suspicion and the um, paranoia out of the election system that trump and his associates have injected into it 
So Liz, I'd love to get your uh, thoughts on possible reform measures. I know you and your colleagues at the Brennan Center have been in the forefront of suggesting a variety of different ideas. Like, What are some of your thoughts on ways we can protect election security? Well, just a couple of things in response to Elaine's remark. One of the um, big hurdles that election officials face when they are trying to get out um, election results on election night or soon thereafter has to do with state laws that restrict their ability to process absentee ballots prior to election day. Um, And this is a concern in at least a couple of battlegrounds, including um, Michigan and Pennsylvania. Election officials in both states um, have Uh, come together and they have lobbied their state legislature for additional pre-election time to process these absentee ballots so that they can get out more of the vote by election night. So really that's going to start at the state level and that's going to have to be addressed on a state by state basis. Um, And election officials have have been working on it, but they have had limited success. So um, I believe that the Michigan state legislature just gave Michigan election officials an additional 24 hours prior to the election to process absentee ballots. And that's a step in the right direction, but that's certainly not enough um, to ensure that they have sufficient time to, uh, uh, you know, do all the work that they have to to process and verify um, absentee ballots. Um, and get the results out on election night. So more work to be done there. But, um, you know, first off, for what the federal government can do in particular, um, uh, the federal government needs to fund our election officials and our election infrastructure. Um, Elections have been chronically underfunded and under-resourced. It is really um, amazing that our election officials in 2020, despite a pandemic um, and despite these other challenges, were able to conduct the uh, most safe and secure election in American history. However, um, you know, they have to have investment. Election officials in in six states um, continue to use paperless voting machines and election officials in even more states continue to use voting machines that are more than 10 years old and and past their um, expected lifespan. Uh, The election infrastructure initiative is estimated that to replace all of this outdated equipment over the next decade, it's going to cost $1.8 billion. Um, So we absolutely just must invest in our um, election infrastructure. Uh, We also think that um, the DOJ, who has uh, recently stood up the Elections Threat Task Force, which is an important step in the right direction. Um, I believe at this juncture there have been seven prosecutions um, for of individuals who have threatened our election officials, but certainly the problem is much bigger. Um, we think that the DOJ could expand the task force to include state and local law enforcement, who again are, are critical partners in this fight against threats against our election officials. Um, in a survey that we conducted earlier this year, we found that about one in six election officials had been threatened, um, and less than half of those reported those threats to law enforcement. But of those who did report to law enforcement, 89% reported to their local law enforcement, um, which is who they call when they're under distress. Um, So this is, again, it it is going to require the partnership uh, of the local law enforcement. We think DOJ needs to expand the task force and work to find other ways to partner with local law enforcement on this issue in particular. Uh, We also think that um, the DOJ should hire a senior advisor that has existing relationships um, on both 
both sides of the aisle in the elections community. Um, you know, we've seen before where um, a federal agency um, has endeavored to assist state and local election officials um, with shortly after um, DHS, DHS Secretary Jay Johnson designated election infrastructure as critical infrastructure. Um, what after what was described as a rocky start, uh, CISA hired Matt Masterson, who, again, he was a former commissioner at the EAC. He had worked um, for the Ohio Secretary of State and, and was well respected. Um, he was able to build the trust of the state and local election officials um, across the country. And now you see CISA is um, widely respected and there's a lot of partnership between state and local election officials and CISA to help protect our infrastructure, which is critical. So we think that the DOJ could do something, something similar. So Elaine, Liz has made some interesting points about one, the need to fund our election infrastructure and the fact that uh, many states uh, and localities are underfunded and uh, the need to update uh, election equipment, and then also the importance of safeguarding election officials. I'm curious about your reaction to uh, those uh, proposals and other things that we need to do. Yeah, um, I, I think she's exactly right. We need lots of um, upgrading of our election infrastructure, that's for sure. Um, the, uh, there's recently in Nebraska, um, there was a man who got 18 months in prison for threatening election officials. That needs to be more widely uh, disseminated, that you can actually go to jail for this. You're not exercising your constitutional rights when you go threaten somebody with violence. Um, and so I think that would help. I also think, and this again comes out of our election deniers research, um, there's a lot of uh, disinformation about how elections are actually done and how ballots are actually printed. So many of these election deniers talk about improving the chain of custody um, for, for the printing of ballots. And I think this is very, very important. My hunch is that most states, in fact, have a pretty secure chain of custody. That, in other words, the, the, print, the paper the ballots are printed on is special paper. Therefore, the Chinese can't send 400,000 um, or 40,000, I think was the allegation, 40,000 ballots into Maricopa County um, in Arizona, that's Phoenix, um, and get away with it, right? Because there's special print paper. Um, the print, the ballots are printed, and of course, they're printed differently for all of the over 3,000 counties in the United States because there are local elections on these ballots as well as national elections. And so that um, that happens too. Um, and that's another point in the chain of custody. And then, of course, they're, they're usually kept under lock and key until election day, etc. Um, it's hard to break the chain of custody. I'm sure there are places where it could be improved, and I think that's something that um, election you know, that state legislatures will take take up once some of these election deniers get elected. But the bottom line is that by talking about this, the election deniers are casting doubt on the very printing of ballots. At the core of their opposition to mail-in ballots is the allegations that, oh, anybody could mail ballots to people and then anybody could come up with a voter file, a voter list, and mail in fake ballots. Well, that just hasn't happened, 
right? It would be diff very difficult to do that. But I don't think a lot of people understand the election process. And so going back to Liz's point, I think one of the other things we could do is do a little basic education about what states do to protect the ballot and even have some public service ads saying, here's how we protect your vote. And that might go a long way towards people who are sort of marginal on this question of elections, getting them to have a little bit more faith in the fact that elections will be secure in uh, 2022. So Liz, it does seem like this issue of vote counting and how that process operates is an important part of this whole election security issue. And I know uh, you have done uh, some work on in terms of audits, uh, maintaining uh, paper trails. Could you tell us a little bit about your thoughts in that particular area? Yeah, I would say that there are a huge number of safeguards built into the system, um, kind of from into all the different cycles, right? From the voter registration process to the election day process to the tabulation process. Um, and while the individual safeguards may vary um, slightly from state to state, they are all in there. Um, you know, we think that uh, some of the most um, uh, important um, safeguards include requiring bipartisan participation in various, um, uh, again, like uh, uh, on various safeguards. So, for instance, um, many states or some states require a bipartisan team to go pick up ballots from absentee ballot drop boxes. Some states require a bipartisan team to review individual ballots that can't be counted by machines because of extraneous marks. Um, some states require bipartisan teams to conduct the post-election tabulation audit. Um, those safeguards are very important and very important um, for the public to understand and so that the public can increase um, trust in our election administration system. There are also a variety of absentee ballot safeguards that are built into the system. Many states require a signature um, on the absentee ballot envelope when, it, when, it, um, when it's returned. Many states conduct signature verification where they match not only the signature, but the other personal identifying information that the voter has included when they return their absentee ballot. Um, and again, states uh, uh, all engage in voter list maintenance, um, you know, and typically have uh, periodic procedures where they remove deceased voters and uh, have procedures that ensure that the voter list in use on election day at the polls have been updated to include the fact that somebody voted early or somebody voted absentee in order to prevent um, a voter from voting twice, for, in for instance. Um, so those, right, those are just some of the safeguards that are in place um, to protect and um, our elections across the country. And for the um, post-election audits, you know, there are there are a, a number of states that conduct these post-election audits. Um, there are at least 34 that conduct post-election tabulate post-election tabulation audits. There are multiple different types of audits, including a, a, a procedural audit, which just checks to confirm that the election official conducted all of the pre-election steps that were required. So in some states, for instance, you must post a list of absentee voters at each of the polling locations. So did that happen, yes or no? Um, the procedural audits are in place to help election officials identify um, uh, places where they need to improve um, and uh, you know, highlight areas of concern so that in the future elections can be done better. Um, the tabulation audits are focused on whether or not 
the election outcomes are accurate. And we've seen a lot of important movement in this space over the last four years. Um, at the Brennan Center, we support and promote um, what's called a risk limiting audit, which is a post it's type of post-election tabulation audit. And it's, we think, um, the most efficient and effective way to confirm um, the accuracy of the outcome. So not only provide confirmation of who won the election, but provide confirmation of who lost. Um, so five states now require them, and that's going to be um, uh, Colorado, Georgia, Rhode Island, Virginia, and the Pennsylvania Secretary of State recently issued a directive requiring risk limiting audits after general and primary elections. So Elaine, we're just a few weeks out from our midterm elections. How optimistic are you that the 2022 elections are gonna be fair and free? Well, it's hard to say. Um, I'm actually pretty optimistic. Now, we, the, we just had a whole bunch of elections that were primary elections with Trump people often running against non-Trump people within Republican primaries. And those actually happened fairly easily, okay? There weren't too many disruptions at the polling places, et cetera. Um, on the other hand, we just don't know what might be in the works um, on the part of the Proud Boys or people like that. Um, they, they may be planning something. Given, however, that so many of them are under indictment, I would think it's probably not a really good time for them to exercise some kind of um, attack on the 2022 elections. So I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty optimistic that we'll get through 2022, um, but then the real question comes in 2024, and what if Trump is on the ballot again, either in primaries or in the general election? Because let's face it, he is the sole driver of suspicion and paranoia around Americans, America's election process. We learned in the hearings yesterday that he was opposing um, absentee ballots in the summer before the election, so before he had lost, before he even maybe thought he was going to leave, lose. He was setting up the predicate to cast doubt upon our elections. And so you you know it, a lot of the what happens here in the future really depends on what happens to Donald Trump and what happens to the millions of people who support him and who believe anything he says. So Liz, how optimistic are you about our ability to have fair and free elections in 2022 and 2024? So I largely agree with Elaine. Um, I'm I'm cautiously optimistic that we're going to make it through 2022. Again, we have um, you know amazing local election officials um, who are very gritty and determined, and you know. Um, Cautiously optimistic, I'll say. Uh, however, right, looking ahead to 2024, I I have uh, concerns in a, in a lot of different areas, and I think those are going to come more into focus after um, after we see what happens in the elections that are happening just in a few weeks here. Well, this has been a terrific conversation, but I want to thank both Elaine and Liz for sharing your views with us about election security. Uh, we at Brookings write regularly on these topics, uh, both at our FixGov and TechTank blogs, and you can find each of them at brookings.edu. So thank you very much for joining our podcast. Thank you, Daryl. Thanks, Daryl.
Thank you for listening to Tech Tank, a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast and sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings. Thank you.